and welcome to the Squawmates Podcast. This is a totally serious podcast where we talk about herpetology and non-avian reptiles and amphibians and things. And <laughs> um, yeah, and sometimes we swear, so just be warned. Um, I am one of your three co-hosts. My name is Mark D. Schertz. I'm a herpetologist and PhD candidate. And I am joined by my, uh, as usual, the two co-hosts, Ethan. Hello, I'm Ethan Kosak. Uh, I am a cartoonist and herpetology enthusiast. And I'm, I'm Gabriel Ugueto, and I'm a paleo artist, scientific illustrator, and I used to work in herpetology, but not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and this time, guess what? We have a guest host! Yay. Which is really cool. So, Helen, can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, my name is Helen Plyler. I'm a herpetologist and PhD student in Al Savitsky's lab at Utah State University. Um, I study sensory biology in snakes. And um, currently, I'm most interested in the pythonids, um, studying their heat vision. But I've also studied vision in uh, water snakes. Yeah, so... Mostly Super sensory cool. biology, but a lot of comparative morphology also is who. So, yeah. Really interesting. Hey, hey, Helen, what's your favorite snake? Oh, uh, Nerodia fasciata, hands down. Oh. I know that's not like a, <laughs> a common favorite. That's but a just, controversial choice. That's a very... I, I, I know. <laughs> that's a very... Uh, they're a grumpy favorite. Oh, yeah. yeah. They're, um, they are mean. They're aggressive. <laughs> And they smell bad, but I love them anyways. I actually have a mm. tattoo of a Nerodia fasciata oh. on my wow. um, upper that's arm. That's commitment. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's what I primarily worked at um, with in Louisiana. So, yep. Cool. Yeah, I was going to say, we have, a, we have a bunch of Nerodias down here in Florida. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Awesome. All right, so um, things are going to run a little bit differently when we have guest hosts on, just because, uh, first of all, we're four people, so when we get through the conversations and things, we're going to have uh, maybe four voices instead of three, which is a little bit more difficult. Um, but also, when we have uh, co-hosts on, we're going to structure things a little bit differently, which you'll get to hear as we move into the next sections. Um, but first of all, we're going to just move along as we usually would. So, first section is first. Uh, Mist Snakes is the first section where we talk about our, our errors from the previous episode and follow-up and things. And uh, I have in my notes another flawless performance. So <laughs> it seems that we didn't do anything wrong. I was interested, actually, there wasn't really any uh, um, uh, follow-up or feedback on nobody, our nobody rather controversial yeah. discussion of <laughs> of invasive species biology, which was good. <laughs> but I did have, there was one call out, and that call out was by my partner, Ella, as I had foreshadowed, that um, our definition for what a call is in reptiles is not strictly correct. <laughs> because hardly hardly you surprising, as you know. Exactly. No, yeah, you did no, no research on that. No, we didn't. Zero. We didn't. And uh, I mean, I, I suppose I should know because I do study frogs and I do a lot with their calls. But you know, a frog and a call is very different from a frog and a rep uh, from from a call and a reptile. And anyway, I can't give you a better definition. I can only tell you that ours was wrong. 
So that's how we're going to have to leave it. Sorry about that. Um, uh, it gets a bit complicated because if you start comparing like insects and reptile and, and mammals and all the other vertebrates, um, the definitions just change between the different groups. So, so but can, can we say that a gecko calls or not? We can say that a gecko calls, certainly. Okay. And a gecko okay. calls in the classical way that pretty much all vertebrates call, which is using its entire, you know, the, the vocal system. Um, okay. which is somewhat different from how a lot of other animals call. And, of course, there are some birds that have weird, like, they click their wings and things. But as I said before, non-avian reptiles. So <laughs> we'll skip the birds completely. All right, good. We can, that means we can move on to the second section. Look how we're just, just zooming along here. Uh, and the second section is works in progress where we talk about how things are going with all of our lives. And I have rather a lot to catch you all up on. So I'll just try and get it through quickly. I had two papers published, Woo. which is cool. I, in fact, described negative... No, I, well, I didn't describe any new species this time, but we revalidated two from Synonymy. So two new chameleons have been um, resurrected, as it were. And the paper, the title of the paper is Rising from the Ashes. Resurrection of the Malagasy chameleons, first of her Monoceros and first of all Voltscovi, based on micro CT scans and external morphology. This is a, a project that I actually more catchy. or less supervised. That's a catchy title. Oh, it's, a, it's a pretty good title. And in fact, the, the two, so we had um, two students who did this project and they took a poster of it to the um, SEH meeting, which is the European Society of Herpetology meeting. Obviously, the um, the acronym is in Latin, so it's not in the right order. But the, um, <laughs> so the European Society of Herpetology meeting, they took the poster along and they won first prize in the poster competition. Uh, and it's really pretty. And so they have also, this is, I think, their first paper. And uh, it turned out really nice. It was published in Zootaxa. And then we also published a very, very short note in, uh, oh, in Herpetology Notes, where we described a very unusual observation by one of uh, my colleagues while I was doing fieldwork earlier this year, where she saw a female frog that, like, it was sitting on the bank of a pool, and then it jumped into the pool and came out of the pool with a tadpole in its mouth. Oh. And it was calling, which is very unusual for a female frog. And so, uh, apparently it was calling. We don't have a visual evidence of that, but, you know... She says it was. And um, yeah, so this is, first of all, a frog eating a tadpole, which it apparently caught underwater, which is very unusual. And secondly, vo vocalizations from a female frog, which is really weird. So that was cool. And I just also, a few days ago, I had my first book published that was not self-published, which mm. was cool. So it's titled... Uh, Les Amphibiens du Nord de Madagascar. Um, I am one of six co-authors, and there were there were a few problems along the way uh, with the whole proofing thing. But yeah, it's my first book, and it's a field guide, and it's in French. And um, so who's the publisher? The publisher is Vacha. It's a Malagasy company. Oh. They're um, 
yeah, they, they do these sort of field guide things, and they also do sort of history stuff. It's, I think the company was actually founded by Stephen Goodman of um, the Field Museum in Chicago, but he, he lives half of his life in Madagascar. And uh, yeah, so that was the first, that's a first for me, publishing a book like that. Congratulations. Um, Congratulations. Yeah, I would have loved yeah. to see the proofs before it was printed. <laughs> Um, but you know, you can't have that everything have, in life. That would have worked. <laughs> so, did they, did, oh what did well. they do? Did they did they do your name wrong or something? Or no, they no. just they printed the entire paper without any of the authors having seen the proofs. The, Mark, the, the book without by any of the Mark authors having seen the proofs. What? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. It was. Um, it's not a very nice situation actually. But oh well, <laughs> that's life. <laughs> That's life. So, anyway, I have a book. I'm not going to get any profit from it at all, but at least it's on my publication page now. So, there's that. Um, <laughs> other than that, I'm just making progress on all of the things. I took a holiday to Malta, where I found, or, or my partner and I actually simultaneously found Chameleons, which was really cool. Uh, Chameleo Chameleon. And one of the frogs that we described earlier this year was featured... On the as the amphibian of the week on Amphibia Web, which was nice. Can I just can I just like I just want to point out that you took a vacation from chameleons to uh -huh. go see chameleons <laughs> in one of the few places in Europe where you can find chameleons. So. <laughs> oh, speaking of which, well, I guess this should really go in the breaking news section, but I'll I'll just say it here because it's on the topic. The chameleon center in Spain was just burned to the ground oh. um, earlier this week. So that's two Terrible. fires in two episodes, which is just, uh, yeah, it's tragic. And it seems to have been um, uh, arson, uh, or at least that's what people are talking about. So uh, just hundreds of, it's hundreds of comedians that are just dead. Who does that? that? Like, yeah, I don't yeah. know. It's baffling, but... I don't, know anyway, anyone, so, I don't know anyone who hates chameleons that much. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I don't think I know anyone who hates chameleons yeah, at yeah. all. <laughs> yeah, right. True, good point. Well, clearly that guy. <laughs> or, yeah. or gal, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, some catastrophic asshole just decided that they would screw with some people's lives. They had a but, fire not that long ago in the um, Iberian Lynx. Where they keep the Iberian League Center, like, what, like a few months ago or something like that? Mm, it's it's yeah. really bad. It mm, keeps no. happening. Not a good situation. No. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, we can move on. Uh, Gabriel, you want to tell us how things are going? Yes, it's been uh, quite a hectic month. Um, I had, um, I had uh, all my, uh, the three uh, pieces of art that I was, uh, that I uh, did for the picture in the past uh, exhibition at the New Mexico Museum of uh, Natural History and Science. They are there. They are in the exhibition. Finally, after a long, tedious process. That's good. <laughs> um, so the exhibition is going to go from uh, now, which is when the SVP or the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meeting starts next week. It's going to run from now to January. So if you're in New Mexico and you want to see cool paleo art exhibit and see three of my works. You can go there and um, check it out. Um, I'm also working on my book, 
that it seems to never get finished. Um, it's, uh, yes, it's, uh, I'm still working on it. And I also was recently commissioned to um, reconstruct several species of um, Australian Pleistocene marsupials that are really, really cool. And I've they been having cool. a lot of fun. Yeah, I yeah saw they're those. super nice. Yeah. I, I've been having a lot of fun uh, reconstructing them because some of them are animals that I've been wanting to reconstruct for a long time. Mm. Um, and um, there might be uh, all the other commissions that I'm working on I cannot divulge but there might be one that is Quamate related that might be coming up next month so stay tuned for that cool nice and also your book was advertised at TetzuCon, right? Yes, it was. And so was our podcast. Yes, so it was. If so you, if you are a person who discovered the podcast there, hello and welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and we apologize in advance. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Ethan, what's going on with you? Uh, so True or Poo came out. Uh, mm-hmm. Congrats, uh, well done. By yeah, by the time everyone hears this, it'll be, it'll be out, and uh, and it's pretty good. I could show you a copy, but it, this is not a visual medium, so I won't. I won't. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> um, and uh, and I am doing Skinktober. On on the twitters, I saw instead of Inktober, yeah. and it, it is it is. I only just got the pun. <laughs> <laughs> Out of wow, all the puns that he, I'm surprised at that. I know, out of all the puns that he <laughs> yeah. gave on the time. <laughs> oh, that's really good. I, <laughs> I was just like, yay, skinks. <laughs> do you have, do you have a list? Do you have, <laughs> a hidden pun. <laughs> do you have a list of all the skink species that you're going to be um, working on for the rest of the month? I, I, you just I made a rough list. Yeah, I made a rough list, but I'm mostly winging it. Um, I've already hit on a lot of the ones that I wanted to, so now I'm just kind of like, well, I like that one, and you know, um, actually, I want to do some of the. There's a, there's some Madagascar, Sirena skinkus, yeah, and that I'd like to do the big Amphiglossus. Amphiglossus is great; it's an aquatic skink. Yeah, yeah, that's yep, um, and they're not skinks that get talked about too much. So far, I've done like skinks that are fairly popular skinks. <laughs> yeah, as as these things go. I yes. Mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's really cool. I really liked your uh, your reconstruction of um, Igernia, which is I, just I've such been, a I've been sort of sw- cool vacillating thing. between between uh, a serious attempt at drawing them and not so serious. So yeah, however it strikes me. So no, they look they they look really good. I've been having a lot of fun looking at them. They're <laughs> awesome. Yeah, really cool. I just it just occurred to me that we had a question actually that's not in not in the show notes, so I'll just ask it right now. Do any of you guys know why skinks are shinier than most other lizards? Uh, no. What is it about their scales that allows them to be so shiny? They're just super smooth. They're super yeah. smooth, and they are not shinier than other. I mean, they're shinier than. I mean, we can if you if you discount gymnothalmids. Uh, I was about to. <laughs> I was about to about gymnothalmids. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite. Then I group. think they're. I think they're easily the the shiniest of the lizards. It's also. I mean, among snakes, you have the dramatic variation between like I have Eupropyophis here, which has a quite shiny scales, and then directly above it, a Dazipeltis, which has totally matte brown scales. 
Well, yeah. it probably has to do with the microstructure of the scale. But it, yeah. it basically is like a super smooth, and that's what reflects. And some of them um, have, it's like there's like an iridescent. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so I don't know that it serves any specific purpose or anything like that, but it's. Mm. You know. Well, it's difficult to grasp them when you, when you, when you, I mean, if you ever grab a skink, you know that they tend to roll and they and try to the squirm hell out of your That's yeah. true. And actually some of the, the Gerasaurs, when you grab them, they'll rotate and just like uh, Gecko Leap is their scales will just come right off in your hand. Oh. So that's... And, and, and I, I'm going to make a, a, a comparison. Like for me, for example, when you uh, grab a Plesiodon species here in the United States, that used to be... Um, Umesis, long time ago. Yes, um, I used that different... by accident on one of them. I used Umesis. I, I saw. I, I was wrong. <laughs> I know. Um, but when you grab them, they're a little bit. I mean, their scales are very smooth and everything, but they have to be slightly less smooth than, for example, a South American Mabuya, which are super yeah. smooth. And when you grab them, they, it's difficult to get a grip on them because. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much every time I've tried to grab like a five line skink. It's bit. It just whips around and bites me, because you don't get that grip right. You know, right away. Mm, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, good. We've answered the question. So whoever <laughs> asked that, you're welcome. <laughs> that is a answer. I don't know if it's yeah. a, a good answer or the right answer, but it is a answer. Okay. So, um, Helen, what is going on with you? What are you working on at the moment? Well, so I actually just transferred PhD programs. I was in Florida um, at Florida Institute of Technology. Uh, won't get into too much into why, but essentially my advisor left. And um, Al offered me a position in Utah, so I kind of packed up. Um, had like a month to kind of get things together and pack up and get here. Mm. <laughs> and um, so I have really, it's just really been a kind of transitional time right now. I yeah. um I'm keeping my same PhD research though. Like I'm probably going to do some additions to that. So that's what I've been working on is kind of trying to decide how I'm going to move forward in a new place. Um, that's really all that's going on in my life right now. Mm. Uh, our lab actually, (laughs) um, one of my lab mates discovered yesterday that one of our African house snakes laid eggs. So that's good news. Oh, they're beautiful snakes. Yeah. Um, we have a little colony of them and I think, they have been really trying to get them to, you know, reproduce, and um, mm. it's finally happening. So let's hope for viable eggs. <laughs> That's good. That bodes well. You know, I met Al at the SSAR meeting in Kansas in 2015, and he is just, he was so nice. And. <laughs> A friend of mine also met him, and she was, like, completely fangirling over how nice a human he was. And he kept saying, oh, you have to come and join my lab, join my lab. (laughs) And then uh, she uh, was not able to leave California, where she was based. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think think that that's also an interaction that she regrets, so (laughs) I don't know. But... Oh yeah, um, he's like he just... he's a wonderful person. He um actually he offered me this position, or at least we started talking about this position. We were um at the SSAR auction the last night of JMIH, and he turned mm. around and saw my name tag, saw that I was at Florida Tech, um asked me 
if, you know, if I was in my former advisor's lab and I was just like, well, <laughs> I was. <laughs> long story short, I'm not anymore. Um, yeah. And he was like, well, um, you should join my lab. This was in line for beer at an auction. Like, totally cool, totally chill. <laughs> like, it was awesome. So now I have a, what a great, great new interaction. advisor. Yeah, that yeah. no, was wonderful. He seems, he seems like a genuinely excellent person. Oh, he and, is, yeah. Um, I mean, he's also got... A, a great reputation in terms of the science that he's doing so right yeah so he's actually been out place. of town the whole time i've been here he's been in um, um doing field work in japan and i think actually hmm. he's in washington right now maybe okay. doing nsf stuff but he should be back soon so i'm looking forward to that and looking forward yeah. to actually getting started on stuff cool. um yeah it's great it's nice. a great lab and utah utah's gorgeous like Everywhere you look, there are mountains. How's the uh, hurricane? <laughs> That's a, yeah, uh, I was been, about to ask. No, it's wonderful. We went um, a couple of weeks ago just to like a couple different sites. We were only out like a total of 45 minutes. Like, like we left campus and returned 45 minutes later. And we found six snakes. Um, and that was just the ones we caught. Um, wow. We saw many, many others. And that's like that's never happened for me before like getting that lucky during field work where they're just like literally snakes coming out of you yes. know the the woodwork as that's so cool <laughs> so it was really kind of cool yeah um and i haven't seen any rubber boas here we were um we were looking for thamnophis elegans but there are rubber boas around there are rubber mm. boas in the lab so that's um i'm looking forward to you know actually finding one of those in the wild <laughs> Those someone are really I think, cool. I've never seen one in a while. Yeah, someone yeah. I think asked us if uh, if rubber boas could survive in the climate where I am in Munich, and I don't remember where that question was, but anyway, uh, the answer is probably not. It probably gets too cold. Um, uh, there are, I mean, I mean, there I are parts of there are parts of Utah that cold get very here. cold. Yeah, my wife's mm. from Utah. It's, yeah, it's a uh, Right I now, would not be averse to having the 40s. them. <laughs> she, Apparently, she, it can drop to negative twenty here. So, oh the, goodness! The outside yeah. uh, opinion in Fahrenheit is, as well. I imagine. Yeah, Sorry. Fahrenheit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's she, very cold. She makes fun of me because I because I used to think that everywhere in Utah was just absolute baking desert, and uh, <laughs> and that there you know just, there's ski ranges and stuff there. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, JMIH is actually going to be at a ski resort Snowbird, next right? year, which yeah. is interesting. <laughs> um, really? Yeah, I don't think we'll be skiing. It's summer, but um, <laughs> yeah, that's it's going to be in Snowbird. But yeah, no, it, it's super cold here, and um, I'm in the northern part of Utah, so um, I think maybe they could, but maybe not. I'm not really sure. There's so many different factors that Mm. affect survival rates right so yeah it might just not be yeah. temperature alone yeah i mean yeah yeah it, i think diet could be a very important part of it they might right. just simply not be able to get the things that they need right um, but anyway that just also occurred to me i don't remember where i got that question from either so <laughs> again you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, let's move on to the uh, the best part of the show. You know what it's called? It's called dee 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 breaking news. 
<laughs> I think I peek on my recorder every time. I, every time I do the that section title, we should you peek uh, in my should, recorder and I'm wearing record like a. <laughs> we should just do like a like a pre-made stinger, you know. That's true. We should, but it's it's almost. I think it might be funnier the way that we do it. <laughs> oh, it's definitely funnier. Yeah. Um. So, uh, of course, the biggest news of the month is that we passed 500 followers on Twitter. Woo! Yay! Woo! Uh, <laughs> it's actually about 550 now, which is really cool. That is really um, good so for the amount of time that we've been on. Absolutely. We've only had four episodes public, uh, released, and we've got over 500 people, which is really excellent, I think. I think we're doing very well. So that's cool. Yay! Um, right, let's get into some... There, there, there are indeed. <laughs> I think we can at this point say there are in fact hundreds of people, which is, <laughs> you know, not something we could say in episode two. So, That's true. <laughs> yeah, hooray. 500 for five episodes is not bad. Is not bad. Okay, so uh, paper number one, the newest, coolest sort of things. Uh, we're going to... We've got about five uh, biggish uh, important papers that have come out, uh, the last of which is somewhat controversial, so I'm looking forward to talking about that. But the first one I'll get my drink is ready. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the first one is by Jones and Wise Wise Rock, W E I S Rock. Uh, published in Evolution, and it's called Genomic Data Reject the Hypothesis of Sympatric Ecological Speciation in a Clade of Desmognathus Salamanders. Mm. So, uh, let's break things down. Sympatry, I think we all know what sympatry is. It's when two things are, you know, side by side. Ecological speciation usually requires more of a definition uh, ecological speciation is basically a process of speciation where the primary driver of divergence between the two different lineage, lineages is adaptation to different ecological niches. Like animals. So that, well, no, like exactly. many, many, many different things. So okay. you okay. can have ecological speciation in animals. They're a good example of it. Um, but ecological speciation is actually extremely widespread. If, if, because you can have separation in what why are you laughing because he knows what i'm gonna say <laughs> he's waiting for it i know this yeah 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 okay <laughs> ah there it is i yeah i didn't even hear the anoli anol issue anolis right in <laughs> in in most in most of these different groups um, oh, by the way, Helen, this is very important. Where do you fall on the anoli, ravioli, anolis spectrum issue? Yeah. Um, anolis? I don't. <laughs> what do you say when you're not saying the Latin name? Anol? No. Ah, right. Anolis? <laughs> That's wrong. <laughs> okay, right, we move on. <laughs> so, in ecological speciation, you can have ecological speciation in sympatry, but you can also have ecological speciation in allopetry. You don't have to have the population side by side for it to be for it to be a speciation event that is driven by ecological processes. So, um, in general, this is what they're rejecting here is the sympatric ecological speciation idea and not the idea of ecological speciation altogether, 
um, which is something that I misunderstood when I first read the title and the, the abstract of the paper. So basically, in these, this system, which is the Desmognathus quadramaculatus and Desmognathus um, marmoratus system, these were two um, alleged species that were thought to be sister to one another, but when they did a genetic study on them, they found that, in fact, the two different morpho species are totally uh, mixed together, but there are still two species there, which is a really funny, unexpected twist. So it's not just that these two different um, forms make uh, are, are simply one species, but rather that there are two different species that is more that are morphologically not possible so, to tell apart. So they're two different species, but not the two different species we thought. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And it, what it turns out is that the the two different species that exist are segregated beautifully by the geography. Mm. So they are entirely allopat or not allopatric but parapatric. So they mm. uh, the two different distributions of the species border on one another, which is not what they were expecting to find. And um, it's quite cool because they show with, um, with mapping things that there's basically no or very, very little overlap between uh, individuals assigned to these two different lineages. And then they use niche mapping to show that the, the two different localities where these animals exist are ecologically very different. They actually have really strong, like strongly different um, optima for the different groups that segregate along a somewhat jagged line that, that divides them up. So at least the way that I'm reading this, it's not actually evidence against ecological speciation as a whole, but really against the idea that these are... Um, In this case. These, these are, yeah, exactly. In this case, it's not... Um, it's rather evidence that they are segregating in allopatry or parapatry, and possibly it's still ecological, but it may, because it's parapatric, it could also be um, much stronger influenced by drift and by reinforcement processes at the hybrid zone and all that sort of stuff. So it's a really cool study because right now the, the trend is towards saying, oh look, ecological speciation here and ecological speciation there. And um, for someone to be like, well, actually, no, in this system, that's not what's going on, or at least it's not the sympatric thing that we thought was going on. It's quite cool. That's cool. Yeah. And, and for those people that don't know what Desmognathus are, those are um, dusky salamanders. Dusky salamanders. Very common in the, in, in the uh, United States. Yeah. And we're actually about to talk about them again. So the second paper, which I think is my favorite paper that's come out this month, um, is called, um, it's by Lietke et al. It's published in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. And it's called Macroevolutionary Shift in the Size of Amphibian Genomes and the Role of Life History and Climate. Oh, this was the Neoteny one, right? This is the Neoteny slash yeah. genome size paper, which is, uh, this is super cool. I don't know if you guys got to have a look at the actual paper itself. Mm. It's somewhat difficult to access because Nature, Ecology, and Evolution is um, is... It's so young that most libraries don't have access to it yet. And, I mean, you, you can get it via certain <coughs> illicit methods. <coughs> and, um, uh, but anyway, this paper is thrilling. I think it's really cool. So first of all, you have 
um, size variation across all of the amphibia. And what we see from some of their ancestral state reconstruction figures, especially figure two in their paper, you have all salamanders have larger genomes than all other amphibians. So even mm -hmm. the largest frog genome and the largest Sicilian genome are still considerably larger than, uh, considerably smaller than the smallest salamander genome. Which is <laughs> nuts. Really <laughs> crazy. Um, but they also did this, this interesting thing where you use a modeling technique to try and figure out is there an overall optimum genome size that everything is trying to evolve toward? Or were there multiple different shifts in what the optimum was? Or is it simply that um, there are various different models that you can use to sort of explain the way that things like these, uh, this are evolving? And what they found is that overall, uh, from the ancestor, salamanders had one big jump, boom, to, to growing to a larger genome size. But then also Desmognathus in particular reduced their genome size again. So of all is, they, is that, they is that implying a single event in their history? And a, um, in it's, a common yeah, ancestor? It's, it's implying a single transition to a different optimum. Okay. So not necessarily a single like duplication of the genome or something like that, but it's just saying, okay, at this in this branch we're going toward a different place than in the other branches. Um, but weirdly, Desmognathus is going toward its own optimum. It's separate from all of the other salamander genomes in terms of its size, which is not what I would have anticipated. I don't know enough about dusky salamanders to really understand that at all. But I wouldn't, it's, it's I, I wouldn't really have cool. picked them out as anything particularly you know, notable as far as having a weird genome goes. So I don't, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, other I than, know... the, than their taxonomy is uh, complicated, like in all salamanders. Right. Salamander taxonomy right. is right. typically They're, they're no more or less weird than other salamanders. No, really. you know? That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, and there's also a single uh, shift within the frogs, which is that of uh, a lightes mulitensis which happens to have its own different like it doesn't seem to fit within the rest of its group which is unusual <laughs> but that can i mean that could be just an error of the model or whatever um so that was really surprising but i think the biggest surprise from, from this space. paper yeah exactly no <laughs> midwife toads are just like doing doing something slightly different um <laughs> but i think the biggest surprise from this paper was um, as you mentioned already, Ethan, the fact that um, neoteny doesn't have the effect on genome size that we sort of anticipated. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean. Right. It's that we, that was always kind of offered up as the possible reasoning. Explanation. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So there's there's obviously an inherent limitation between how fast you can mature and how fast your cell process, processes can function, depending on how big your genomes are. But in in some cases, like in, in, as we know from the axolotls that we talked about, I think in episode three, the genome size is just so enormous um, that people had said, oh, that must be somehow related to the fact that they're neotenous. Um, but these guys used um, phylogenetic path analysis models, which is complicated as fuck, 
um, in order to try and figure out what the direction of the change is, what the, what the relationship is between various different factors and genome size. So what is explaining genome size? And overall, they found that in frogs, the developmental period and especially the mean annual temperature is somehow having an effect on um, genome size. Hmm. But also um, in, a, in, well, in salamanders, there doesn't seem to have been much of an explanation except for the developmental period. That seems hmm. to be the only thing that really is going on. So it's a bit unusual. I, I myself don't really fully understand um, what the implication is here for, uh, for what then really does explain the size of the genomes. It's, it's very hard to say. I think also because these groups are so big and, you know, it's hard, it's hard to get any kind of implication. But what they have said explicitly in the paper is um, climate, that is temperature and humidity, affects genome size indirectly, at least in frogs, as a consequence of its effect on pre-metamorphic developmental period, although directionality of the relationship between developmental period and genome size is not unequivocal. So basically, hmm, <laughs> maybe genome size is affecting the developmental period. Uh, but yeah, so it's, um, it's not clear. It's, hmm. It reminds me of, you know, thinking about how I, I've always wondered why there are no frogs that have a neotenic state. Something that I think has puzzled a lot of people for a long time. Yeah. It's something I think about not infrequently. Yeah. Um, this keeps me up at night. And, and yeah. salamanders, neotenic salamanders are known from the fossil record from the beginning of when we know the salamanders started. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's uh, it goes all the way back. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, the next paper I just want to mention relatively briefly is a paper by Nori et al. published in the Journal of Biogeography, which is titled "Global Priority Areas for Amphibian Research." This is something that people tend to do rather often. They're trying to make new maps of where the best places are to do amphibian research. And this is the second paper that I'm aware of where they've said, ah, there are all these data-deficient species in the IUCN. Why don't we map them and try and decide where the important areas are to conserve? This succumbs to the very same downfall as the other data-deficient species paper that I'm aware of, where... The whole, they don't understand the point of being data deficient, which is us not being able to map adequately where the species are. So, I mean, what they've done, they've mapped 1,578 data deficient amphibian species, which is, congratulations, well done. Um, <laughs> and they, their conclusion is basically, if you conduct surveys in just 0.4% of the world, I'll remind you that the surface area of Madagascar is 0.4% of the world's land surface area, conveniently. If you survey just 0.4% of the world, we could clarify the conservation status of more than 80% of data-deficient amphibians. Which is true. I don't deny them that. I have a prediction. But also, there's a reason they're data deficient. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> What's your prediction? It's going to come back with not good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's another thing. Like, okay, so I should say, I am an assessor for the IUCN. I do amphibians. And recently, the trend has been to go away from using the data deficient status at all, simply because in the view of the IUCN, if there is the data from a single individual, you might still have enough data to give it a status according to their criteria. So their criteria are divided into, I think, five different main categories, and almost all amphibians are assessed under criterion B. And criterion B is just the extent of occurrence or the area of occupancy of the species, how many localities it's known from, mm -hmm. and whether there is a trend of habitat destruction, population decline, etc. that can be even speculated about in that area. So almost all animals can be assessed according to criterion B, admittedly very unreliably, but they can be assessed. And so if we start to just categorize them as being not data deficient, but let's say endangered based on a single data point, the likelihood is that that's going to flip over. And so anything that's DD that's transitioning to being something else is not necessarily an improvement in the status of the species or, or, or even in the, the extent of our knowledge of the species, but it's rather us trying to push for removal of the DD status simply because we think it's a bad thing to have this gray unknown. So I have somewhat strong opinions about this. Um, but I think that it's a problem to, to view DD species as simply being, um, you know, something that needs to be solved. I think that, you know, these guys have got it right. The message needs to be, yes, we need to understand the species better. Uh, but in almost every case, there's a good reason for these things being DD, which is that we simply don't have enough data. And yes, going back and finding more is maybe helpful, but if you go back to the same place where you found the original species, you don't really know anything more about its distribution. So what needs to happen is people need to be more exploratory. We need to go back into the exploratory science. Yeah, maybe. well, pl plus it's not always easy to go back to the f to the, some localities where some species have been collected. Exactly. And it's, it's not even possible sometimes, so it's uh, th that gets complicated. Yeah. Or, or what do you do if it's recorded incorrectly you know like you you have that's um i i think that's why crested geckos weren't rediscovered until the 1990s because their original uh recorded <laughs> location was wrong mm. yeah I think, I, I think you're right i don't remember the story there the the, the wrong type localities happened all the time yeah there were a oh. lot of species that were um the the type locality especially at the beginning of the of, of the last century um the type locality was given as the port of shipping of the specimen uh -huh. not at the actual um distribution of the type right. well no so one had happens you, often right you don't have there's no gps's in the in the 19th century so the, a lot of it is just yeah. guesswork you know yeah, I've spent a shocking amount of time looking for a place in Madagascar called Anfica, which does not exist <laughs> <laughs> because that's the type locality of Gecolepis maculata, and we we can't we cannot 
based on its morphology, sort it to any of the existing species. So we were hoping that geography would help, but it comes from a place that is clearly originating in a typo. And mm -hmm. we don't know what the spelling error was that created this problem. So we Super common, especially when uh, no foreign, foreign herpetologists were dealing with local names. Yeah. They, they, yes. they didn't understand what they were. Yeah, it happens yeah. all the time. Uh, yeah, what the hell? Oh, yeah, something. It looks something <laughs> yeah. like that, or it's been transcribed four times, and the first yeah. person had like a really loopy handwriting, <laughs> and everybody else is like, "That's a D, right?" And it's actually an O L. That I think that happens quite often. Or so. when a country has many places that are have the same name. Yeah, like it happened sometimes in Venezuela. There were several places that had the same name in different disparate parts yeah. of the country. Yeah. So Madagascar a, has like 18 ancenas or whatever, because that just means where the market is. Yeah. <laughs> so you have no idea where the original locality was, where yeah. the species was collected. Yeah. It's, it's, it can be very frustrating. I think that um, there, there is a lot of improvement that can be done by doing more basic field work. But I think also one of the big steps that we need to see is for the IUCN to start making recognition of the fact that some of these things are data deficient, wh why they're data deficient. They need to say, this one's data deficient because there's been a single specimen ever collected in the 1870s, and no one has ever figured out where it came from or what it actually is supposed to represent. And then you have other categories for like, oh, the scientists couldn't make a decision, therefore DD. Those ones are easy to change, whereas the other ones are practically impossible. You might as well call them extinct if you can't ever find a specimen of them again. And by the way, um, the first case that Mark mentioned, people might think that that's a rarity, but that happens a lot. There are a ton of um, reptiles and amphibians that are only known from one specimen, sometimes collected a hundred or more years ago that nobody has ever seen again. And nobody's, sometimes they don't even clear, you don't even know exactly where they fit in the, uh, right. in the uh, phylogeny of a certain group. And for, in my view, uh, a lot of those species are sometimes taxa that have become extinct. Because they usually yeah. come from places that have been... Um, Often, uh, yeah. Yeah, that have been uh, 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 deforested. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting, that, it's the, interesting the that that kind of puts into yeah. perspective, you know, whenever there's the headlines about, like, you know, rare frog that hasn't been seen in 60 years rediscovered or something like that it's i think a lot of times down to this exact problem yeah i mean we just um these these two different species that we just redescribed neither of them has been rediscovered well that's actually not entirely true but anyway i don't <laughs> want to talk too much about it but um one of these species has certainly never been seen since its original description. It's extremely unusual looking. It has a really long rostral appendage, really long nose out, out the front, and an extremely short tail for a chameleon. So it's, it's very, very weird. Oh no, my Luthrodactylus is starting to call. <laughs> I'll have to take care of that in a second. Um, but this thing has just never been rediscovered since it was originally described. And we have revalidated it because it's obviously a valid species, but it, um, my, my supervisor, Frank, was just recently back in this forest looking for the chameleon, and there's no forest there. So there's a good chance that this chameleon is gone, and, you know, we'll just have to, you know, it's, it's revalidated, but it may also be extinct. Yeah, it's kind of a horrifying thought that 
we we lost we lose a lot of stuff before we even know about it. Yeah. 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 One of the um, there's a, a famous case that I remember of an Atelopus that was described like a hundred years after it was extinct from yeah. the northern part of Venezuela. Atelopus um, Voglei, I think it is. It was very. It was considered to be part of another Atelopus species, and it was. Then it was seen that it wasn't, it, and and that's sad because we never got to see that species yeah. in life. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm moderately certain that the type series for that species is here in my museum. Yeah, if, it, if it's so. really Fogli, yeah, then I it's the it one is. that's here. And I think it is. I will tell you this. I will tell this very confidentially to the podcast listeners. <laughs> <laughs> there are, I think, 300 specimens in the type collection. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because yeah. it used so. to be extremely common. It they was so everywhere. abundant, yep. they collected a huge number of them. Now it's an extinct species. Just, and the, just walked into the forest, have, filled up your pockets with these things. And we have jars like, upon jars. I think there are three jars of the type series. Oh, yeah, they yeah. used to be everywhere. They used to be oh. everywhere. Well, that's comforting to know, that it's, it's <laughs> not just like they hunted them to extinction. <laughs> but, I no, mean, no, that no, is no, the I, kind I, of collection, collecting that gives scientists a bad name, taxonomists a bad name, yeah. but that does not happen anymore as a rule. No, and it happens with every, almost every Atelopus species that used to be very common. The, the collections of hundreds and hundreds of specimens. They did all kinds of studies based on those hundreds of specimens, but now they're, you know, we all know that how bad Atelopus species are doing, so. Yeah. All right, uh, the next paper is by M Amado et al published in ecography as it says in huge letters across the type of the first page of the paper um, <laughs> and the title of the paper is geographic variation of body size in new world anurans energy and water in a balance um, so basically this the the premise of the paper is to test um, Berkman's rule Bergman's rule states that among closely related species, body size increases towards colder environments at higher latitudes. So, okay, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's about body size, and it's about the relationship between latitude and uh, temperature uh, yeah. and body size. I think don't I haven't I usually heard that brought up about like, you know, like. Mammals. Place mammoths and, and mm -hmm. you know, mammals in general. Mammals, and, that's yeah. what they always say about, like, for example, white-tailed deer. Like, the largest ones are towards the north, and then here in Florida, we've got the really small ones, and the key deer is tiny. And oh, yeah, the little, little yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it, it has been, there's loads of evidence for, um, for Berkman's rule from other groups, especially birds and mammals. But uh, in other things, especially in ectotherms, it's not really been addressed in very much detail or the evidence is scant that it's satisfied. And mm -hmm. the outcome of this paper is basically that in the New World, at least, so in the Americas, the uh, anurans, the frogs, do not follow the simple Bergmanian pattern of increasing size towards high latitudes. But rather, they find that it's explained um, by... There's, so there's a consistent association of median body size and potential evapotranspiration across the New World. But there's also a joint importance of, for, of, of body size for thermoregulation and hydroregulation in frogs. Um, 
Yeah, so they've basically shown that the as temperature, here's another quote from the paper, our results also show how temperature becomes important for species that are directly in contact with the substrate and water, like burrowing and terrestrial inurans, while arboreal species exhibit a body size cline linked with potential evapotranspiration. So which I found really cool. So distance from from standing water is the not distance from it but rather the whether or not they come in directly in contact with it okay so mm-hmm. I, I i suppose those two things are um only very slightly different from one another but what they're talking about is like so substrate itself especially on the forest floor maintains um heat differently okay to how high to, to, to if your frog is up in the up on leaves in the in the, the canopy and things. The okay yeah and, yeah. and so it, it stays colder longer in the morning and it maintains heat slightly longer in the evening. All right. I'm trying to put it into context because I'm thinking hmm. like bullfrog, right? Right. So bullfrog. Yeah. Generally. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So in those cases, in bullfrogs and other terrestrial things and especially burrowing things like microhylids in, in North America, um, they're going to have a really important role for temperature. Whereas anything that's arboreal, all of the, the hylid frogs and, all, I mean, the, the whole diversity of all the tree frogs and things in the Americas is going to be largely or more strongly linked to evapotranspiration. Hmm. And that happens across the different ecosystems? Yeah. So they, they provide this beautiful map in the thing, which I'm afraid we won't probably be able to put into the show notes because of rights for it and stuff. Uh, but they show a map with the relative diversity of species, so species per grid square, basically, across the Americas, which obviously has the greatest diversity in the Andes and across the rest of the Amazon. Um, And then they have, uh, side by side with it, uh, a plot of median SVL, so body size, um, in millimeters. I should note that they have used a linear and not a logarithmic scale, which is controversial but anyway they they show that the largest frogs are actually those i mean i would say based on the maps alone sort of in the americas there's certainly as you go north things get larger in north america as you go north things get larger in south america as you go south things get larger but then on the other side of what i guess is I don't know enough about my South American um, geography, but I think like towards the southern end of South America, things get really small again. Like Chile is, and Peru. Like Chile and yeah. Argentina. Chile and uh, the very southern tip of Argentina, like uh-huh. down into Patagonia. Well, that's Argentina. Which is, yeah. yeah, but that's not where I would have expected to find frogs in the first place. <laughs> well, yeah, they have all those really cool, um, like, um, what's the name of the one that has a, Really long snout that Synax Racafor, no. uh, the Darwin's frog. What's it? Uh, oh, rhino, the, rhino, um, something, yeah, rhinoderma, rhino, rhino, no, not rhinoderma, right? Is it rhinoderma? I think so. Let me see, yeah, yeah, yeah it is rhinoderma, yeah. rhinoderma, good guess, <laughs> yeah, rhino, yeah, true, yeah, what, yeah, I, so you. It's interesting that you can, I, like, I can pick out species along that 
access that I could think of that are, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, like, like cane toads being from, Sur, you know, Suriname and, and then yeah, from everywhere. Get, yeah, well, now, but no, no, no. Yeah, but I mean, originally they're everywhere. Or you know, they're all over from Mexico south to Argentina. I know that they are you now recently been split into two species, but the two species are east and west of the Andes. So it doesn't That's matter much. That's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. But, but even but so, I mean, even, even if that's enormous. true, it still kind of fits that, that pattern. I, don't, I, don't, I, I really want to see the map, and I'm not seeing it, because it doesn't make much sense in my head, because I've always known really huge frogs in the tropics. <laughs> yeah, so, what about like Cuban tree frogs? Like, I thought about Cuban tree frogs immediately. When but a Cuban tree frog, it's a small it, tree frog compared to like, like um, uh, Boana boans yeah, or something yeah, like yeah. that that is yeah. huge. Yeah, and uh, and all those uh, even osteocephalus. There are a ton of osteocephalus. Thank you, Mark. Oh, yeah. are, uh, <laughs> let me see. Um, yeah. yeah. So I mean, I I find this also it's it's somewhat surprising, but it's nice to see that things are. I mean, as they say in the paper, this is not following Bergman's rule. It's not actually fitting oh, okay. what they would expect. But I think that it, it, at least part of that may be explained by the fact that you have these sort of holes in the diversity at the other end of the of the situation. So, yeah, it's a bit unusual. Yeah, mm. it's an interesting Aww. idea. Yeah, but it's still it's quite an it's quite a nice paper. And uh, the first author is on Twitter, uh, so you can go follow her at. A M A D O T A L I T A on Twitter. Amado Talita. Amado uh, so um, Amado Talita, that's that's her name. <laughs> well done. <Mark>. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um. <laughs> that's some A plus uh, detective work. Yeah. Yeah. Alright. <laughs> now Gabriel, are you still fighting yes. against the map, or are you no, ready I, to have the controversial discussions? <laughs> no, I, I'm ready to have the controversial. I just don't. I I'm trying to come up with what species are these that are larger towards the south, and it just like maybe it's, it's maybe I, I I really have I really should have read this paper before you, this you discussion. Know, have, like, and, a, as, and as listeners oh, can, what can a surprise. Yeah, and as listeners can see, I haven't. So I'm picturing like yeah. the you know that that meme of uh, of Charlie from Always Sunny with the the you know bulletin board behind him with all the strings and everything and like you know. Kind of <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't understand these frogs. Well, I mean, okay, we'll go back to that later. Yeah, yeah, Maybe yeah. yeah. We'll move on. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay, um, let's move on. So, if anyone follows um, Anolis Annals, or yeah, Anol Annals, Anoli Annals, <laughs> Gabriel was a Anoli Annals. <laughs> um, there has been a little bit of a kerfuffle among <laughs> the taxonomists for years. For years, this has been for, going well, on. I mean, for years. yeah. So, so the problem has gone on for a very long time. And I'm going to just come out and say it as someone who doesn't work on a Nolus. I don't understand why people are sticking to the single genus definition. It doesn't make sense. Anyway, so to give background, there was a paper published by Poe et al. 
in 2017 in Systematic Biology, where they made a new phylogeny of the dactyloidae, dactyloidae, dactyloidae. I can't say dactyloidae. Yeah, dactyloidae. But they said this is just just a phylogeny of Anolis, and they used somewhat unusual clade names in that paper. And I think it's relatively uncontroversial to say that those names were unusual because some of them didn't seem to follow any of the typical um, naming criteria. And other ones, were they just assigning a name to a node based on the idea that this is a clade and it's a stable clade, so we'll just give it a name without assigning it a rank, which is something that is akin to the phylocode, which mm -hmm. is something... Is, uh, the phylocode is like an alternative to the ICZNs um, uh, code for a zoological name nomenclature where you would basically um, give names to clades and somehow they wanted to sort of establish what rank a clade was at based on either how old it was or how high it is or whatever. Um, but this is not exactly like phylocode naming, but it's also not really like anything else. And so it was a bit of an issue that they had come along and said, okay, this is how we're going to name all these different clades. And now a new paper by Kirsten Nicholson et al. published in Zootaxa, which is called Translating a Clade-Based Classification into One That is Valid Under the, in under the International Code of Zoological Nomenclature, The Case of the Lizards of the Family Dactyloidae. Um, so, my first issue is understanding the, 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 the issue of whether or not we recognize Anolis as, uh, I mean, it is obviously a genus, as it is currently used, as it has always been used, it's a genus, and it's in the subfamily or family Dactyloidae or Dactyloinae. Now, at least since 2013, when I last looked, when I looked at some of the other papers, the name Dactyloidae has been used for the entire. So all of Dactyloidae is occupied by the single genus Anolis. Every single member of that entire family is sitting in a single genus, which hmm. is a little bit weird. So if you go look at the Pyron and Weens paper, which is that um, massive phylogeny based on all of the stuff that was in GenBank, they produced a, a phylogeny. You can see the beautiful diversity of all the Anolis and all these nice little clades, which in any other family would, be, would have would been be, given yeah. genus ranks. Yeah. Well, the, the thing is that until recently, relatively recently, uh, 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 Anolis was part of the family Polycrotidae because they were considered to be the closest relative of the monkey tail lizards Polycrus from South America. Now we know that Polycrus is not closely related to Anolis, but is closely related to other Iguanians. I think um, I don't remember exactly which group it is, but I know that Anolis are more most closely related to Corythophanids, which are basilisk and helmeted lizards and all that. So um, uh, when that happened, the the family have to be given another name because Polycrus is not related to Anolis anymore. Um, the paper, for a long time, Anolis had been known to be two main groups, right? There was uh, the, fair, the famous, uh, I forgot the uh, um, uh, author's name, there is a firm, famous thesis 
that divides and all is based on the um, uh, of the, of the uh, morphology of the caudal vertebrae. Uh, basically, if they are capable, if they have the, um, it's basically morphology of the caudal vertebrae. They're divided into two groups. They were for a long time called alpha and beta anolis. Beta anolis are included in the in the subgenus or genus norops. For a long time, people have been calling those norops. And actually, a lot of uh, herpetologists working in Central America, particularly, many, many of them German, <laughs> um, uh, uh, have been using norops for a long time. So norops is a name that is, that is in, the, in the literature for it, decades. It strikes me as being really similar to what happened to Hyla. About, you know. It's even more because the problem, the reason why they don't want to change anolis is because anolis have been used for models for many, many different kinds of scientific, you know, right. studies. So, but that's a matter so of convenience. you would have to then. change it's, a lot. Well, yeah. yes, it's, that's it's basically the, truth, the, it's convenient. Yeah. the main right. argument of why people don't want to change the name is that that is exactly it. Yeah. Well, that's it's kind convenient. of a poor argument, is it not? A I lot strongly of, agree. <laughs> but the problem is that most people that are the, well, you know, I, I'm not going to say that. Keep going. <laughs> I'm not going to say it because it's going to it's going to be a controversial um <laughs> Wasn't that the point? <laughs> I'm happy. I'm happy to have this be a con controversial conversation. I mean, so the um, Anal Annals ran a poll on their website, allowing people to vote whether or not they would use the eight genera or single genus classification, and it was overwhelmingly against using the new classification. <laughs> And people just don't I like change. Don't, I mean, you know. I don't understand that at all. I mean, I think that this is really just people. It's. I mean, it's like people struggling today with using Colubra Day. Because yeah. people are still using Colubra Day or, or, to refer to what is actually Colubroidea, Bufo. the super family, it's, or Bufo. Yeah. Exactly. Well, the, or, the argument you know, is Rana, that all of these. Uh, Rana, this yeah. is why I have a. This is why I, I have a problem with it. If you're gonna take a point of view or a position, then adapt, the, uh, adopt the same position for every case. I have a problem with this because, for example, the same people that are not um, uh, accepting breaking anolis into several genera, for some reason, accept breaking of mabuya into different genera in the in the neotropics when the gene when the genera are also non-diagnosable there is there, sometimes it's impossible for you to know in the field if you're looking at a whatever the names they give them which i'm sorry to i'm sorry but the names are horrendous uh, <laughs> uh it's impossible to tell them apart so that's because that's been the argument against the uses the breaking of anolis is that you cannot uh, uh, a researcher in the field a lot of times will not be able to diagnose uh, a species mm -hmm. in the genus because the genus are not really diagnosable. Yeah. The I, well, I don't. Really I don't know about that. I, I think that okay. So maybe it's possible to They're describe not. to to use fewer of these genus level breaks as well because you know there's no established level at which you must break genera. You could mm -hmm. also break anolis into two genera or you know four genera or well it would be two or three or five. You know, you can have almost uh, an infinite number of different ways that you can split this thing. And I think you have to look for a level that makes sense because, as I say, you know, we're not, we're not using phylocode. We, we, I mean, I don't want to say that we can't, but at least right now it's not the thing that most people are doing. 
and so you know it makes sense to try and divide species based on things that are based on logical sort of uh, differentiations diagnosable differentiation diagnosable entities and what this paper has failed to do so what they have done is they provided a checklist of all the species assigned to every one of the genera but they have not provided any information on how to diagnose any of these genera well which means that their work is useful taxonomically in terms of assigning things you mean in the latest to anybody you mean yeah, in the in latest, latest well, response? Yeah, because there is an, in 2012, there is a the paper that generated all this argument by Nicholson and our colleagues and, and Savage and everything that, that tried to break and all this decades ago. Um, they did mm -hmm. a paper in 2012 where they were the big one, the big, the big, that generated all the big discussion. And they did, they do give some diagnosis there, but it's. Oh, well, that's good. Um, they are not, there's a lot of overlap. So it's, it's very difficult. It's the same with Mabuya. That's why I have a problem with it. Because if you're going to accept one, accept the, then you have the same arguments against the other. Nobody said anything about Mabuya, but everybody's complaining about Anolis because uh, I think... Um, so let's say it's not completely objective. Yeah, and there are more fingers in the pie. I think that's also... You know, you look at the, you look at the author lists. So... In the in the the people who are in this um, this argument for saying okay let's split it into more things, <clears> it's four authors and it's the same four authors, three times in 2012 and 2014 and 2018 now, the responses especially this paper that they're responding to now this one that was published in Systematic Biology, is, uh, I think nine different authors several of whom are relatively you know big names, I wouldn't say bigger names than the others, uh, than, than the people there was, you know, that are having the debate. But still, you know, it's a lot of the Anolis taxonomists. I see Gunter Kula is there, for example, and uh, Kevin de Quiroz and things like that. I mean, I guess Kevin's role was probably more in terms of like the biogeography and stuff. And By the way, stuff. Big, big proponents of phylocode. Yeah. Also, which would explain their use of the the placement of names on the on the um, on the nodes. But you know, I think that it makes rather a lot of sense to. Uh, so my personal feeling on this, and the way that I voted, is that I will I will use the eight genus classification because I think it makes more sense to treat things as more manageable units. And as it is, Anolis contains how many species? Uh, more than 400, more than 400. 429 recognized species, that's, which is yeah. obscene. That's ridiculous. I'm sorry. Uh <laughs> and, and let me say that this is mostly a problem for, for, for herpetologists that are working on the Caribbean islands. If you are in mainland, Central and South America, you have no problem because we have two genera there, Dactyloa and, and Norops. And those two mm -hmm. are diagnosable and easily differentiable in, in, in the field. So this is mostly for people that are working in the, in the West Indies, in the, in the Caribbean. Yeah. And then, I mean, it's just ridiculous. There are even more species of Anolis than there are of Certidactylus. And Certidactylus is well known as being a, a, a huge hellhole in terms of the number of species that it contains. So, I mean, yeah. Uh, personally, I don't see any good argument aside from this, like, don't want to change and want everything to be, you know, the reverse compatibility argument. I see where that comes from, but I also see like a much stronger value of progress 
Well, and, and so the, 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 what, what do you make of the argument that and all this has been used for models, you know, uh, in many other kinds of research and that the amount of literature is so vast that you cannot really blah, blah, blah. But the thing yeah, but is 70% that... percent of that stuff is, is going that, to be only on Sagriai and, and Carolinensis. Carolinensis, which is already an anolis. Anolis Carolinensis yeah. is anolis. So that argument there is uh, mute yeah. because it will still be anolis. So. Exactly. So I, I don't I don't really see that. And I think that, you know, we have that problem all the time. If you try and do anything like there have been studies on elaif for years, a decades of uh, where everything that is to now divide now divided into, I don't know how many, like 18 or more different genera Pantherosis. that are now. That, yeah, so Pantherophis, all of the all of the South uh, the the Southeast Asian yeah. genera, Eupropyophis, yeah. um, uh, uh, you know, the list goes on 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 and on. Yeah, and you know, there's I see no reason why you would want to keep them as a leaf if that. Uh, first of all, in that case, it was also because there were different ones in different families, which made things more of a problem. You know, Pantherophis got bumped over into, so Pantherophis is still in Colubrine, right? But the, um, some of the ones in Southeast Asia are not. And so, you know, right. it's a bit of a mess, that whole, um, that whole story. And of course, you know, there are also books that are just called Elaif. And then it's all of the different, um, what are now multiple different genera lumped into one book. Well, that book is now no longer um, super informative in terms of that stuff. But, you know, that's also, that's just the way that progress goes. I don't see any reason why old books on a no list, at least it's still Dacloidae. And, like, and that, is, that is the reason why, that is taxonomy. Taxonomy, taxonomy yeah. is a fluid thing. And, and, and my biggest problem is when I read that their argument is for monoph if the, if the clade is monophyletic, you should not break it. Well, well, <laughs> I mean... I mean, yeah, but then everything would just everything, be animal, animal. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Everything is monophyletic. And you don't get to <laughs> so. choose which, which, which clades you're going to treat as monophyletic, so we, which ones aren't. I go back to, you know, what Mark was saying about Colubroidea or uh, the breaking of Mamuya or even the breaking of uh, Typhlops and stuff like that into all the different yeah. genera. It, yeah. it goes the same. I mean, Typhlops is also a controversial, controversial decision. Like, Typhlops was broken into an obscene number of genera, yeah. but they have also been pretty much universally accepted. There were a few that were wrong, but, you know, for the most part... It's been it's been good. Yeah. Those I are better, better, more diagnosable than what they did in Mavoya. Yes, certainly. I mean, Typhlops before was just a it was just a trash bin. Everyone's just throwing in these yeah. stupid names, uh, these the, uh, species names under one stupid genus name, which is totally uninformative. And I think that's the problem we have now, where the name Anolis is so uninformative, because it's just like okay, it looks marginally like Carolinensis. All right. It's an anolis. Well, and that's Whereas, why I know, said that's why I said it reminds me of Hyla, because for a long yeah. time, yeah. That, and that and was, keep right. in mind that it's a, a lot of these frog? must be a Hyla. Right. A lot of these species have been separated um, for tens of millions of years, so it's not like they are oh, yeah. anywhere closely related. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So I, I guess the, the controversy will continue, but. <laughs> Uh, at least I think I've made my side of the of the story clear. Gabriel, what are you actually going to do? 
I You're have, the one who does all the illustrations of them. You have an actual interaction <laughs> in the stage. Because you know what? I, I'm not completely sure. I go back and forth on this. I, I can see both sides of the argument. But I, I think, personally, I'm more... You know, I, I, I prefer to break them into separate gene, genera because it's far more yeah. informative. But I know right now anybody that works uh, with analysis is probably going to be throwing things at their computers when they're listening to this because they don't they usually yeah. don't like that. <laughs> I, I think I'll be really interested. Go, go on. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm pro splitting it into the eight genera. Um, I don't understand why anybody would use the... The argument of it's you know it's more difficult it's gonna make things more complicated i don't i don't understand that like i think you know obviously i'm agreeing with what you're saying mark is that you know progress we have to have progress even if it does make things a lot more of a pain in the ass right. <laughs> you right. know? so and of course you know it's taxonomy so it's also not it's not an objective field taxonomy is a science yes but it's also something where decisions and it's opinions it's matter. Right, it's an interpretation yeah. of... But you're, yeah, the yeah. value of taxonomy in it is in carrying information. And right. Anolis is carrying considerably less information yep. than these alternative genera. And from, as far as I'm concerned, I'm also a big proponent of subgenera because I think that a lot of genera that are split the way that they are are relatively uninformative, but you could give them additional sort of categories that help to break things up. So in Madagascar, we have several frog groups that are beautifully divided by their subgenera, where the genus doesn't actually help you very much. Mm -hmm. But there are at least, you know, there, there are um, characteristics that unite the entire genus, but then each of the subgenera also have diagnostic characteristics. So you have these two very easy levels of of recognition and then species level recognition is really hard it's something that i think uh, five people in the world can actually do with any reliability mm -hmm. and so you know it's those those two pieces of information are super helpful and um and i would not be opposed to saying okay let's use these things as subgenera then that's what they it's being proposed like that for an oldest too it, a, a lot of people have proposed that for an oldest we'll see hmm. Yeah. If there's if that's a happy middle ground, I can live with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to the main discussion, which is also the hashtag herpers section because we have Helen. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Right. So, um I guess we can we can do this more or less as a free discussion. I would be really interested to hear Helen about how you got into herpetology in the first place, any sort of role models that you had or cool people who were like, hey, you should do this thing. And you were like, oh, yay, I'll do that thing. And <laughs> anything, anything like that. Tell us your story. Okay, so um, I actually I started college in 2009. Um, I was actually going to be a nursing major. I was going to be a nurse. Um, that was in the middle of the recession, and I was like, I need a recession-proof job. Um <laughs> I quickly learned that I cannot stand dealing with humans, um, ah, especially yeah. not on the nursing level. I have much respect for them. My mother's a nurse, but Jesus, like, <laughs> people are a lot. So you um, much prefer it when your patient is trying to bite you. 
I prefer, yes, I prefer having my face bit off to having to deal with it by a snake than having to deal with a human, honestly. Um, <laughs> I can yes. totally agree with that. <laughs> so yeah. um, I got halfway through my bachelor's and switched to biology and um, was actually working in the human anatomy and physiology lab um, as Dr. Cliff Fontenot's assistant. Uh, at Southeastern Louisiana University. Um, and I started asking him, you know, about undergraduate research opportunities. And he had like this whole list of things that he wanted to do. Um, and one of them was looking at vision and semi-aquatic snakes, um, or well, actually semi-aquatic animals in general, and like looking at mm-hmm. how they handle the transition from right. um, land to water um, from a visual perspective. So I started doing that research as an undergrad um, with about a year to go in my uh, program. And I didn't finish it as much as I wanted to. You know, I didn't get as much information as I wanted to in just a year. So I decided to stay on as a graduate student there. Um, I was co-advised by Dr. Fontenot and also by Brian Crother. Um, And... I mean, I've always had, like, this huge fascination with snakes, um, snakes specifically. I like other herps, too, but, like, snakes are where my heart's at, so, um, and where my head is at, like, all of the time. I think it's easy, yeah. Yeah. It's an easy feeling to get. Yeah. I, um, often call myself a snake biologist instead of just, like, a herpetologist because I want people (laughs) to know, like, (laughs) very specialized. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, it's, Yeah. That's, yeah. that's also a valuable thing to be able to do, right? Is uh, you know, I, I know several people who are like, oh, I'm actually a bat trachologist. I'm not just a herpetologist. I only study frogs. Is there a word for is, like, is, is there a, a fit, ophidiologist? Ophidiologist. Ophidiologist. Yeah. Ophidiologist. Yeah. Serpentologist. Yeah. I like yeah. serpentologist so, better. <laughs> serpentologist <laughs> is really good. Yeah, but I think the the only person I know who regularly calls himself an ophidiologist is. Um, uh, what's his name? Professor Mark O'Shea. Oh, okay. Who? Yeah, and I mean, he is a, a real. Speaking of which, his book is now out. Sorry, don't want to interrupt everything with an advertisement for his book, but <laughs> he um, was at, his book. He was is, at TetsuCon, wasn't he? He was yeah, at he TetsuCon. Was. Yeah, yeah. He was a big. Uh, I was a huge fan of him as a kid. I watched his show on TV. Yeah, me too. Me too. Then one day he came and worked in my office at that table behind me. And I was like, ah! <laughs> it was really cool. Anyway, go on. Sorry. I, I oh, no, it's okay. What was I saying? Um, yeah, so I started this project as an undergrad studying um, vision and semi-aquatic snakes. And I was looking at um, their actual their visual accommodation Um shining lights into their eyes and seeing uh how they were like literally how they were affected by like being submerged in water um and i added some different components there i did some um histology i did some allometry to look at eye size between Mm. uh two different species of neurodia neurodia cyclopion and neurodia fasciata um but Mm -hmm. Ultimately, what I found there was that um, the more semi-aquatic species, uh, which of, of the species that I was looking at, Neurodia cyclopion, um, it spends mo- more time in water than the others, and it's actually able to 
achieve a really high level of uh, visual accommodation. So it sees equally well um, above water and below water, which is Hmm. interesting. Um, And so I, you know, carried on my interest with uh, sensory biology and snakes. Um, I moved to Florida Tech to study with Dr. Michael Grace, who has since left academia. Um, and my uh, PhD project started, and um, I'm looking at infrared sensing in pythons. Um, specifically, I'm looking at uh, the diversification and the variation in pythonid pit organs, um, just kind of across the pythonid lineage, and how that mm. affects their um, ability to detect infrared. Um, from like an optical perspective. So there's multiple levels to my project. I'm still kind of, still kind of working it out. It's a work in progress, obviously, but mm-hmm. yeah. It's really interesting. Can I ask a question? Cause I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea that, you know, usually snakes get this rap as having poor vision. Yeah. So, I don't know where that comes from. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't get it. Like, I don't know why people think that because their visions from what I can see in my accommodative studies there, it's pretty comparable, comparable to human vision. Like I, I don't yeah. know. They seem to be able to see just, so, so that's a myth. That's, <laughs> that's not really true for a lot of, for a lot of, I mean, not probably not for all, but you know, reptiles are, have very good vision in yeah. general. I mean, yeah, a lot of them are um, very visually guided. Like they have a lot of vi- very visually guided behaviors. Um, so I, I don't know where that whole thing came from. My grandmother actually mm. one time she was just like, "Oh, you study snake vision, so snakes do have eyes, right?" And I was like, <laughs> "What? Yeah, they do. Of course they yeah. do." Mm. <laughs> mm. You looked at one before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was so, actually reading a paper not long ago where they were explaining that uh, certain groups of snakes have, I think, originally snakes lost some of their ability to see color. Which compared to lizards, all lizards seeing color, but snakes lost some uh, lost that ability at the beginning. But some have regained yeah. that, the number of cones in the yeah. In the so um, there haven't. There's actually been surprisingly few studies on the visual systems of snakes. Um, mm. It or just you know, I'm always shocked by how little we know about everything. Like we don't even <laughs> know what we don't know. But um, yeah, looking at. Uh, the snake vision, like there's some that have like all cone retinas, like the um, a lot of garter snakes, and um, then there are mm. some that have a mix of rods and cones. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, does that fall along diurnal and nocturnal type? Well, and also fossorial and uh, arboreal right, or terrestrial yeah. snakes. Right? right. Yeah, it varies with um, you know dial activity patterns and you know mm. where they're actually found, like where they are at. Um, there's just... Um... I have two questions. Yeah. Uh, the first is, do you have any evidence of, or, or do you know of any cases where they've done something similar to, oh, I'm trying to think of what it was. I think it was geckos, where they lost the color vision cells, which are the cones? Uh, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So they lost the cones... But then they took one set of their rods and readapted them to see in color. So they became cone-like rods. Um, There's, I don't remember which species that's from. Is it a day gecko or something? 
No, I think it's actually... I, I think it's a frog. Oh. Hmm. I don't remember if it was... I can't yeah. remember now if it was frogs. Because, you know, there was this new study that came out earlier this year where they basically showed that frogs have crazy great color vision at night. Huh. Um, yeah. And there's something very similar that's been done from geckos as well where they basically showed that geckos also have incredible vision at night. So they can probably see full color in huh. anything but pitch dark, which is huh. insane. Yeah, yeah it really so, is. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Huh. So, but I can't remember if that was in frogs or in, um, in, in geckos. So People have to anyway, remember that. Do you, do you know of any cases like that? In, in snakes, I'm not. No, I haven't. Um... I haven't heard of any. I don't know if it's very well studied. Like, I mean, those studies could exist, and I'm just not aware of them because I've been, you know, mm-hmm. off the off the vision grid for a little bit. Um. Yeah. No, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'm gonna have My... to look into that. <laughs> oh, so there is in fact Thamnophis proximus has cone-like rods. Hmm. This. Paper was published by De Busserol in 2017. Drink. Uh, uh-huh. In science, are we drinking? When I say a French word now, too. Just all <laughs> of the words. Everything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this was pu- published in Science Advances, pushing the limits of photoreception in twilight conditions. Hmm. The rod-like cone retina of deep sea pearl sides. What does that have to do with anything? Huh. This is pearl size. Is that a sea snake? Wait a second. No. What? Wait. Wait. It's a Tamnophis, right? Someone is lying to me. <laughs> I remember clearly that paper about arboreal snakes having particularly good vision and color, but I don't remember. Pearl sides are fish. <laughs> Sorry. Pearl sides are fish. I have no idea what this paper has to do with. It, it mentions Thamnophis once, fish. but it seems to be in a table. Hmm. Where they say, oh, yeah, it has... Um, well, I thought you were going to bring up, like, uh, what are the, the cat-eye snakes? You know, like, the, they have the enormous <laughs> eyeballs in these tiny little heads. Oh, like Imantotus? Yeah, yeah. Apparently, also, um, uh, Anolas have these... Yes, the Anolis have been... Anolis have been uh, there have been a lot of studies on Anolis vision. Hmm. Okay, well, we can hmm. get back to the discussion. I have my, my second question was, how do you do these accommodation experiments? What does that look like? Okay, so the method that I was using is um, called photoretinoscopy. Essentially, you have, um, well, in my case, I had like a little teeny um, infrared camera, and I had a shield of LEDs on the front, and the LEDs were infrared LEDs, so they didn't actually, um, like snakes, well, these snakes can't see infrared with their eyes. So it didn't actually affect mm-hmm. their vision. It kept them at like a resting state. Um, they had no visual response to the LEDs is what I'm trying to say. Um, right. and I would just place the snake in front of it, um, kind of let them calm down, uh, and basically capture a video of the light shining into the snake's eyes. Um, the light bounces off the back of the back of the eyes, return to the camera and the pattern 
that is returned is measurable and uh, you can plug it into this uh, equation for visual accommodation and it will show you how in or out of focus the eye is. So I did that, um, what I call it in air. So just like in the lab and then like I submerged the snake and repeated it. Um, it was a lot of trial and error actually. It was really, (laughs) it was really kind of (laughs) difficult. Snakes don't like being, um, involuntarily submerged turns out. And you did that with, with Nerodia, right? Right. Yeah. Which are notoriously cranky. How do you still have hands? Yeah. (laughs) I, uh, I lost count of how many times I was bitten. Um, (laughs) And biting is like the least of the concern with the Nerodia because they also do that That fun thing where they sling crap everywhere, you know? So. Yeah. The light. (laughs) Yeah. It's wonderful. I still love them, but. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's nice. That's always, that's good that they survived that, uh, or, or, you know, they surpassed all, you, you survived all of their attempts to make you hate them. Yeah. Um, and they, I and actually you still like maybe, them so much. I maybe like them more. They, uh, <laughs> wow. they have a lot of character. Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> so how is it that they, um, or how good is snake depth perception actually are they able to focus like are they able to have accommodation with a single eye when they're when they're looking around like chameleons do or do they really require the double image to get things really properly in focus do we know um i think they probably require the double image but i'm not really sure the eye placement you know it's kind of on the side there Mm -hmm. Um, yeah it's really weird but i I don't (sighs) think the eyes move independently of each other um mm. so i think that they i don't know i don't know i really yeah, don't know complicated yeah it's very complicated it's a, yeah well it varies also i would imagine depending on the species of snake right right yeah <clears throat> so eye, eye position is different yeah. the species. has those really high up you could say yeah. semi-aquatic so they have them high up in this in the skull so it helps right. for an aquatic animal right yeah, right. uh, yeah, right. like uh, uh, anacondas too, where they have the yeah the really high goggle yeah. whole selection of yeah. these, and also you know the the eryx, the very weird uh, sand boas, where oh, they yeah. look like sock puppets. Yes. you know yeah. they they've got their eyeballs right on top of their heads. Yeah, it's so weird. Yeah, and then you have all those arboreal snakes with you know binocular vision that have their eyes. Right, imantodes and things Imantodes like yeah. and Ayatula and all those. Yeah. Oh so. man, I just I just googled Eric's again to just to look at them, and they're just so <laughs> creepy. Like <laughs> they look exactly they, like sock puppets. They really do. They look like little muppets. Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, Apparently, if you Google just Eric's by itself, though, you get a rocket launcher. Yeah, so I saw that. Eric's snake. Interesting. <laughs> Eric's snake versus what is this? Yeah. Oh, I'm learning all kinds of things. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Today's a learning day. <laughs> so, uh, so I can I just about the 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 way that you did the experiments. Uh, you're shining this light, and you're measuring the amount that their iris reacts to to the light. No. So, um, well, I did that too. I looked at, um, change in like, um, 
pupil diameter to see um, as like another secondary method of accommodation. Um, but basically the light bounces off the back of the eye and is returned to the camera and you basically have it's hard to describe but you have so, a, um, like eye shot like a like the like it's, ta- like it's a tapetum like, lucidum kind of thing they, they don't have it yeah they don't have that but it looks like that when you like yeah have the infrared shining the way the, i don't know so yeah, yeah okay. but they don't have a tapetum lucidum but yeah it, it's it kind of returns a light pattern in it um yeah so it lets you you can you're able to mm. measure that pattern of light that's returned. Um, there's a nifty little equation that I didn't come up with. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, you don't have to be a visual physicist to be a herpetologist. I think that's very important. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's no. That sounds really cool. And then so you moved you moved on from that to doing this this thermal. Um, imaging so now they really are able to see so when you're looking at your pythons right they really are able to see that infrared light which the neurodia couldn't see right because they have um heat pits they have heat pits um within or between their facial and labial scales and this is true of um three different groups of snakes um the pythons boas and the pit vipers um that's actually really fascinating um because they're also that they've been repeatedly lost and right regained. exactly yeah so um it's just bonkers so it, it's, uh, it's I'll have crazy to, i have to give another madagascar example you guys might have to introduce a new rule to the drinking game i don't know <laughs> <laughs> so madagascar has its own uh family of boloid snakes the um the sanzinii yeah. yeah so sanzinia and Acrantophis. Mm-hmm. And what's crazy is that Sanzinia have become so similar to Corallus mm-hmm. that they were actually described from the same genus. And the um, Acrantophis were admittedly described originally in Acrantophis, but were later, both genera were synonymized with boa. Mm-hmm. They're morphologically so extremely Very similar. similar. Yeah. 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 And that that people are still arguing that they could be considered, uh, I mean, until the genetics came out, they were still arguing that they could be considered um, members of the genus boa. But what's crazy is that Sanzinia is a real tree boa Mm -hmm. and Acrantophis is a real ground boa. Mm -hmm. And Acrantophis has no heat pits, whereas Sanzinia has really strong... Well, this is something that's not entirely clear. So they have really strongly lifted scales, but they don't form pits as I would like, as I would ex- uh, expect them from like, you know, Corallus or some of the other ones. So they're like pit-like structures. Well, so with the boas, um, the heat-sensitive parts of the, the quote-unquote pits... Um, they're not okay so they're not as pronounced as in the pit vipers or the pythons no, by any yeah. means but no. mm-hmm. they are just kind of between the labial scales like just on the edges there so not like any amount of depth they're not like all it's not like fully lined by heat sensitive um tissue it's just right there on the edges of the labial uh scales um and yeah sansinia has those really deep they have kind huge of depression labials yeah exactly yeah. um versus you know 
uh, Ekrantophis, um, Doomrose Boa, which, yeah, yeah it, like nothing at all. Like, you, it's totally flat. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah. it's interesting. It's, it's very impressive that they've converged so extensively. I'm actually working on a paper right now that is more or less that exact topic, but hmm. we're looking at it at an osteological level. Um, right. to try and, and kill once and for all and explain how it is that these things are so similar to Boa without actually being synonymous with Boa. Hmm. Yeah. Which is really, it's very cool. The degree of conversion evolution that's happened in those groups of snakes is, is really shocking, especially, you know, Corallus, Sanzinia, and um, Morelia. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you could put Marilia and Corallus in front of me, and I genuinely would not be able to tell you which one is which. <laughs> They're <laughs> so similar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we actually so. had um, a couple of Sanzinia and actually a, a ton of uh, Acrantophis, uh, Doomerals yeah. Boas, and Florida. They're easy to keep, huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're they're popular that... in the hop, you know, in... in... Right. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently the um, Doomerals, they just kind of are really easy to breed. They just Yeah, um, I've heard that. At least it, that's, why, that's how we end up with so many, apparently. So um, that was in Florida in the Grace Lab. We don't have them anymore. I'm sad about it. But um, yeah. <laughs> so feeding them, it was interesting because the Sansinia strike, this is just totally anecdotal. The, um, the Sansinia strike with much more accuracy when you're feeding them versus the Doomerals. Um, the pitted versus unpitted. Yeah, it's like yeah. they they interesting. They they strike in kind of the right direction the Doomerals do, but um, they don't always have the best. I don't know. They don't were, always grab the prey immediately. Like they sometimes feeding, strike uh, and. Were you feeding miss. live, or were you? Feeding yeah, we were feeding live. So. Hmm. Yeah. What is the yeah, what is the main you, the main natural prey of Sansinia? Because I think that might that might have to do with if the uh, prey will fly uh, away or it will you know crawl, yeah, remain yeah, in the scamper. area. Yes. Yeah, because <laughs> Corallus feeds largely on birds too. And, and so they bats. Might, ah, they, this bats, is a yeah. very interesting and incorrect misconception. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I have gone through. I have read all of the diet records that we could find on everything that has ever been reported from wild Corallus. At oh. least um, oh. Corallus. The possums, possum, Ruschenberger eye, and all that, yeah. They eat largely mammals. In fact, possums, there are yeah. there are a very, very small number of records of them ever eating birds. What about bats? And especially, so, so it's important to distinguish. I'm only talking about Corallus caninus. I do not have any records from Hortulanus, which has... There are more records from Hortulanus than there are from caninus, but mm-hmm. Caninus is the one that we had scanned, so it's the one that we were comparing with. Mm-hmm. And for Caninus, although they are tree animals, they and they certainly are also hunting in the trees and whatever, almost all of the diet records from them are mammals. So and then there are a few reptiles. That's two myths um, busted a few in birds one episode. <laughs> that's, that's, snakes can see just fine, and, <laughs> and Corallus... Does not eat birds and bats. Yeah. So, but, well, Hortulana certainly do. And, and, you know, so I don't want to overly generalize. I just want to say that Corallus caninus, it is a misconception that they're eating birds and that that is like the, the really strong reason for them to be so arboreal. Um, but there's plenty of other stuff that they can get. And about Sanzinia, we know extremely little about their diet. Um, 
But Sanzinia, mm -hmm. although they're called tree boas, we almost always find them on the ground. I've only ever found juveniles in trees and a single sleeping adult I found in a tree like a meter and a half or, or yeah, just about a meter and a half off the ground. Um, it's the only time I've ever found an adult in a tree. Almost always we find them on the ground sleeping in the sun. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's sort of a, a weird misconception, but there there is certainly you know they have some adaptations that would lead you to believe that they are at least better at hunting in trees than acrantophis are mm -hmm. and um we do have diet records for them from uh from uh from them for reptiles and some mammals and i think one or two birds so there it's a slightly different diet composition than acrantophis have but only mm -hmm. Acrantophis, I think, have ever been documented to eat lemurs, which are, you know, generally quite arboreal mm -hmm. as well. So, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I boa had one for lunch. <laughs> boa constrictor, you might consider to be a terrestrial predator, but almost uh, or a large number of the boa constrictor diet records are from them eating in trees, hmm. which is can, can Although, surprising. Well, okay, Helen. Can I go? Can we go back to the uh, just talking about infrared sensing for a second? Yeah, sure. Because uh, something that I've tried to, uh, that I'm interested in is just how how does that work? Because it's not it's not something that is easy to understand. Uh, you know, a sensory organ that we don't have. You know, how are they using it? And is it actually right. vision, or is it how is that working? <clears throat> so. It's obviously not vision with the eyes as we, you know, we usually think of vision as only happening there, but I would argue that it actually is a visual system. It's distinct from the um, vision with the lateral eyes. Um, but basically infrared heat, um, environmental infrared is picked up by these pit organs in or between the facial and labial scales of the snakes and transmitted to the optic centers of the brain via the trigeminal nerve ganglia. There, so visual information from the lateral eyes and infrared information from the pit organs is processed in the same region of the brain. Mm -hmm. so, so if you imaged the brain when the snake's receiving that information it looks like the same kind of thing happening as visual information hitting their eyes. Right. They have a, um, it's spatial. It's not just like, so they have like a spatial cool. mapping on the brain of that, uh, that activity. So do you know how fine scale it is? I guess that depends on the species, obviously, but like if we take a, a classical example, I don't know, a berm or whatever. I don't know if Burmese pythons actually have heat bits, but yeah, they, they do. They do. It, yeah, so so down to like, can they can they tell if you have a <laughs> a pen light know, like <laughs> a very yeah exactly like how how fine scale is their distinction between um, both at the spatial scale and at the temperature scale? So um, what we know about the organs and how they take in information, and if you do optical modeling, basically it looks like the they aren't able to um, see very well with their pits. They can see, you know, some changes in temperature, um, not at a very, not very far off. But 
there is a possibility of there being some post-processing within the brain to like sharpen the mm. um the information that they're um so it might sharpen be getting, the input it, it, so that it might be getting added to their it, it's sort of acting supplementary to their other visual information right so i would think that um vision and heat, heat vision and regular vision like light visible light um vision uh they overlap so i mm-hmm. think that they work in tandem to kind of just improve the visual experience of the animal mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. So there have been different studies looking at the um, temperature sensitivity, um, and it seems to be largely distance dependent. I, I can't think of any of like the actual numbers like right off the top of my head, but um, yeah, so very sensitive at closer distances, harder you know harder to, for them to distinguish objects at farther away. Does that, um, does that imply yeah. that it might be used? more for things like thermoregulating rather than hunting specifically? So, yeah, so they, they, I think it plays a role in both, um, but it's been hypothesized that it does play a role in thermoregulation via like habitat site selection. Yeah. So, yeah. I think that's really interesting. I mean, I'm, so I'm interested from the, from the inside side. So, do you, do you know if they're so the, okay the trigeminal nerve has lots of different branches and um goes through lots of different holes but do you know if there's any sort of correlation between the like how many branches of the trigeminal there are along the labial scales uh, and if it's if it's greater in species that have the heat because okay the trigeminal is always along the upper lip and the upper lip of almost all uh, um, reptiles is super sensitive when, so those labial scales are, are hypersensitive. Um, in geckos, it's really cool because it manifests as it being a totally different type of scale to all of the other scales on the head. So do you mm-hmm. know if there's like, if they have even more sensitivity in those scales or are the, is the trigeminal basically being repurposed? <laughs> So I, I I believe that there is differential branching of the trigeminal nerve ganglia between the different species, um, but they also have these infrared infrared sensitive trip channels um, lining their pit organs. So uh, mm. that's something that not all species have. Um, okay. Yeah. So. So they've taken. I it guess further. that yeah, that stuff is probably getting relayed through the trigeminal nerve, but right. it's, you know, it's coming from then a different sensory. Uh, array okay that's uh, i think that's fascinating that's yeah. really interesting and uh oh. it's so the pit organ i think is is kind of an eye it's not an eye in the traditional sense the way we think about it but it's like a pinhole optical system um it mm-hmm. lacks a crystalline lens but it's still able to take in um electromagnetic radiation so i mean it's still doing the same thing as the eye, just with a different region mm. of the electromagnetic spectrum. Um, right. Yeah. So work in progress. <laughs> how how yeah. come no one ever says that, but we always hear about it with the tuatara and the stupid, you know, pineal, yeah, the, the pineal <laughs> organ. Yeah. The pineal organ. Yeah. <laughs> Reptiles have a bunch of eyes, people. They're yeah. like, they have like hundreds of eyes. <laughs> 
<laughs> Every reptile is a Lovecraftian horror. Yeah. The pineal organ can even have a little lens on it and yeah. everything, like a little retina and everything. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, I know. The pineal organ is more of an eye, but still, like, I think that, you know, the function is also different. Um, ha, um, Helen, have you compared uh, what's happening in Boyd's um, with, um, with what happens in Pit Vipers, for example? I haven't, but it has been done. Um, I'm actually only looking at pythonids right now because I am, um, you know, I don't know if you've ever taken a good look at them, but they have a huge variation in pit organ size, shape, number, distribution. Um, And that's been taken into account in a couple of phylogenies, but nobody's really like... And and a mount, right? Like they have like more than... Well, then pit vipers, obviously, they have... Right, you know. yeah, so they pit vipers just have the two, the paired, and then um, two paired pit organs, and pythons have pit organs existing in arrays, huge arrays. Um, yeah. Mm. And, yeah, so there's a possibility for me to change some of my research and add some different comparisons in um, to be determined, but... <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, I, I oh. knew about this from... Taxonomy. You use it, you use it for taxonomic reasons to separate, for example, different genera of boas. You have like a picratus has very shallow mm-hmm. um, pits, and then you have like boa has very shallow pits compared to corallus and stuff like that. So it's it's interesting because I never got to see this other part of the of mm-hmm. the, those what those structures are and what are doing in the snakes. <clears throat> have you taken a look at any of the images of um, kind of, they have some drawings like cross sections, com- like kind of sh- comparatively showing um, what it looks like in a boa versus a python versus a pit viper. Um, let me send one of those pictures to you, actually. Hmm. Cool. Um, but anyway, so the the pit vipers, their um, their pits are a little bit more developed. They have um, like a inner cavity that maybe helps sharpen some of that information. Um, whereas with the boas and pythons, or well, at least with the pythons, it's just an open single chamber. So there's, there's difference. There's differences there. It's possible that, um, the pit vipers are, have a little bit more sensitive infrared. Yeah. But and maybe using it differently. Yeah. Maybe using mm-hmm. it differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. But it's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I think I've like scratched the surface, I, I realize I really haven't. So um, <laughs> all just... these heat sensing um, structures are um, present in snakes that are primarily nocturnal because both, you know, pythons and, you know, they can be active at different times of day. But in general, pythons, boas and pit vipers are mostly nocturnal snakes. So that's interesting. I yeah. mean, if they're also covering or having a role in thermoregulation, that's that's also very interesting to take into account. Okay, I wanted to ask you next about, um, well, about a few things. About if you have any um, women in herpetology that you find particularly um, exciting or, or, or inspiring and how you feel about the hashtag herpers movement thing on Twitter and, um, and all of that. What is your experience as being... A woman <laughs> in her <laughs> So, I have always been 
always been in labs that were only populated by women. Um, all of my lab mates have always been female. Um, so that's been incredibly positive to have that kind of dynamic um, mm. and form those type of friend- friendships with other female herpetologists. Um, not that my relationships with male herpetologists are any less valuable, but like having that kind of community has been really important. I think to my development as a scientist, um, Mm -hmm. my, uh, best friends in the world are my lab mates from Southeastern. And we talk every day about all the things. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and I just think that, you know, I think that the, um, there is a, a definite shift towards more women being involved in herpetology so that it's almost even number wise, but I don't think it's even treatment wise. Like, um, it, it's a challenge to do field work on your own. Um, in particular, I was doing a lot of field work out in the swamp or the marsh rather, um, when I was in Louisiana and I'm not sure if this was the experience of the male graduate students who preceded me, but I was often followed, um, on my route. I was <laughs> kind of harassed and talked down to by just random people who would see me with the snakes. Um, and that sounds incredibly negative, but I just kind of took it as, well, y'all are all idiots. Like, <laughs> I'm actually, I'm actually a snake biologist. Like I'm, this is what I actually do. So, um, I felt the, you know, I have felt the gender divide there, but it's not been, it's not really, it's not really been too horrible for me. Um, would you, would you say that that's more of a public perception of herpetologist issue than a internal yeah I, yeah I think in a lot of cases yeah um and i have worked all of my advisors have been male um men in the field and they have never treated me differently because i am a woman ever not even once that's <laughs> so that's been incredibly wonderful and i know that that's not how what others have experienced i know others have experienced um a little bit of prejudice you know, for being female, but, um, I guess I've gotten lucky. Um, I've also been able to interact with other like really prominent women in herpetology, like Mo Donnelly, um, Mm. Mary White. Um, they were people that I was introduced to very early on and they're, you know, everybody looks up to Mo. Everybody does. So um, she's a really wonderful, strong woman. And it's been great to have that kind of influence and that kind of person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's nice. It's nice to be able to work or, or work with or know, um, you know, I- I- inspiring people who are always um, who, who everyone also looks up to. You know, it's it's one thing for someone to be inspiring to yourself. Um, but if if everyone else feels the same way, then it gives you that sort of camaraderie in the relationship. Yeah. So, so when you said that you were being um, uh, uh, harassed or something bothered when dealing with snakes, what exactly was it? Like, what was the... I would, I would go out on these uh, road cruises every week. Um, it was around sunset. 
and I would just cruise this 20 mile transect just down and back. And the number of people who pulled over and tried to like give me tips on like <laughs> how to handle the animals, like or, or assumed you were in distress scold, or scold something. me for handling the animals. Like oh. those are dangerous. Scold. Like those are snakes. Like you need to put that down. You don't need to be out here. You know, I, you know, just like mind your own business. And I don't know, but I, I can't know if that is, is just me or if it would happen to anybody, you know? So, well, you know, I was thinking about that because I don't think that any of us, I'm, I'm sure that we've all been out catching animals or snakes or lizards looking for them. And I don't think we, any of us have ever been stopped like to be scolded about not to handle them. Uh, no. We, yeah. Yeah. Only yeah. to be like, oh, you're looking for lizards? Cool. But nothing to I guess. I mean, anything. I've gotten weird looks in that, you know, I like wandered into someone else's yard that I wasn't supposed to be into or something. And what yeah. the hell are you doing here? And Oh, I was trying to catch a lizard. But not, you know, not, nothing yeah. like that. Yeah. 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 And it, it's never, it's not really impeded by progress in any way. It's just kind of, it's interesting. Um, <laughs> there was one night that was particularly scary actually i was down there and i noticed that someone was following me with their lights off um Ooh. and i'm not actually sure i ever told my advisor about this so sorry brian sorry sunny <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah i was every few you know i'd have to stop for every every harp on the road live or dead and um it was it's pretty much popping <laughs> as far as animals go. So I was stopping a lot. And every time I stopped, they would stop too. Um, several hundred feet back, but like they were, they were clearly following me and, um, they would get closer and closer the further along the transect to the point where I actually had to pull over. I saw some, um, some people fishing and I was like, I'm going that way. If you don't see me come back in like an hour, you need to call somebody. Cause, um, these people are following me and I can't stop my work. So Yikes. Um, Yikes. It's creepy. That's scary. Um, yeah. But, yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> did, did, that's they, the, yeah. did they move on? Did, they, did, did you eventually have to confront them? They uh, eventually kind of left. <laughs> um, but there have <laughs> when been they times saw you where... holding a handful of snakes? <laughs> <laughs> Just, like, coming out of the marsh with yeah. a handful of Nerodia. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> they actually eventually kind of, I guess they got bored um, stalking yeah. their prey. But, um Nice. <laughs> no, but it's, it's definitely it's definitely cool to for you to tell these stories because it it shows. I mean, what a division there is of how we, of how society treats women in this kind of, you know, in this field, compared to how they treat men. Yeah, um, and I don't think, I think there was a, a while where I wasn't really aware of it, and I was just thinking that because that was my experience and I figured that was everybody's experience. But then in mm -hmm. talking with people, um, with my lab mates and at conferences and with y'all now, I realize you know, that's not, that's not the, that's not the norm. And, um, uh, I think it's good that, I think it's good that the Herpers movement is receiving attention. Um, um, and I think that's been, yeah. I think that's been really great just in general. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the one of the big things is that it's not just I mean, as we're all herpetologists. Um, and so for us, it's easy to be like, well, OK, Ethan, is, <laughs> you have your honorable herp card. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, 
but you know we're, we're all herpetologists and so we sort of see this from the inside and it's different for us it's it's for us within herpetology it's like okay we need to recognize how many female colleagues we have what their experiences are and all of that mm-hmm. but for the general public there's also a different side to it yeah. it's also the value of seeing look this thing that has this typical um, you know, especially, you know, field herpers is such like a macho, um, it has this macho um, notion to it yeah. that people mm-hmm. get. Well, even just, and it's great for them to see that, you know, it's not just even a sausage Even just among fest. people who keep snakes, it's an issue. You know, even, mm, even if no. we're talking about that, there's always been this sort of machismo attitude about well, it, which I, you know, which is, some of the people that keep snakes it. are a little bit, um, yeah. Questionable in my book. Yeah, I mean, some of that, some of that. I mean, that, I'm I'm sorry, listeners, but uh, some of you are weird. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. So so Germany has a big, um, a very very large population of people who keep venomous snakes. I think um, per capita, I would guess, without knowing any numbers at all, I would guess that there are more people who keep dangerous snakes in Germany than anywhere else in the world, simply because the herpetological pet trade is very yeah. um, active, and HOM exists, and in HOM there is a, um, a venom room where you can only go in if you have your ID with you, and but you can go in and you can buy cobras and pythons, uh, not, not pythons, ugh. <laughs> Damn you, Toxicophora! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're all venomous, actually. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This room means nothing! Get out! (laughs) Thanks, Ethan, that saved my ass. Um, (laughs) uh, But you can can go in there and you can buy all kinds of uh, dangerous shit. And um, and so there's a large population of people who have really dangerous shit. And... um, Yeah, and so much of that is just... is, Is... chest beating you know it is it is but it's you know the funny thing is i would guess that maybe maybe a third of the tables at in that room are being run by women uh you know it's 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 actually not that strong a sex divide but if you look at the the sex ratio of the people who are walking into the room to buy the animals you you probably see like a seven to one ratio or something (laughs) like that it's like yeah, so there there is a certain um, yeah ratio deficit that's going on there with right. the you know, and I'm they're they're crazy animals. You have to be a little bit crazy to own one. I don't think that's a gender thing. I just think that <laughs> like <laughs> I, I think that you have to be a little bit off the hook. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's uh, I always find that room a little bit weird to go into, but you, it's it's always cool to see the animals. Do you keep any snakes, Helen? Uh yeah, Personally? I have a um I have a rosy boa and a ball python. Um Rosie's boa's name is Rosie, so original. Of course. <laughs> and uh ball python's name is Petra. They were both um animals that were part of the collection at Florida Tech. And when the lab disbanded, I took them. Gotcha. With, like they knew I took them. Like yeah. it was a, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, absconded with them. Absconding with them in the dead of night. No, I, I filled out a form, like an adoption papers. They were our outreach animals, and I think. Um, oh great! They're they're really great snakes, actually, both of them. Um, yeah. 
but I haven't really kept reptiles in the past. Um, my mother would not allow it, (laughs) um, growing up. And, um, whenever I was in college, it was just easier to, I was in the dorms. It was just easier to have the snakes in the lab. So, um, these are actually my first two like pet snakes. (laughs) So it's, Yep. I, I find snakes are such great reptiles to keep because they're so uh, easy. Like, they, they don't require a lot. Mm-hmm. And they also tolerate, if, if they tolerate any handling, they tend to hand, tolerate quite a lot of handling. And so you can, like, yep. they're interactable animals, yes. whereas frogs and geckos and whatever tend not to be. We have a uh, so. uh, Arizona mountain king snake. And it's, oh, beautiful. A, it's a great snake. It's a really good very very yeah. mild tempered animal so yeah i used to have an oreo cryptophis which was the opposite of a mild tempered snake <laughs> it made a neurodia look totally calm <laughs> and so every time i would go to do anything inside its tank it would it would tag me repeatedly <laughs> oh, and God. eventually i was just like i'm done i'm i'm so i sold it <laughs> beautiful snake bright orange with black racing stripes but i just couldn't it, it was in such good health that I wanted somebody to breed it, but I did not want it to be me. <laughs> so. I think that the okay. worst tempered snake that I ever had was a Corallus Ruschenbergrai. Oh, yeah. um, uh-huh. uh, it, uh, it was terrible. I couldn't get even close to the terrarium. It was just strike and strike and strike, never, never stopping. Corallus yeah. are, are also a big problem. What a pet. No. Yes. <laughs> Well, there was a, we had a Burmese python in Florida that, um, it would strike its cage so hard when I would walk by. It hated me so much that it would actually like end up with like blood, like smearing across oh, the cage. Like it would yeah. hurt itself oh, to it get yeah, me. <laughs> was um, one of those, uh, res- like uh, captured here? Like one of those Florida introduced. Oh the yeah. That we, we had several of the <laughs> Florida locales. Yeah. Yeah. So, local, yeah. They were aggressive to say the least. Uh, yeah. <laughs> would not recommend getting bit by those. It hurts very badly. <laughs> well, it's funny cause Burmese yeah. are usually held up as the, as the, as the more even tempered of the big pythons. <laughs> you know, uh, compared to retics. Well, and... I mean, compared to rock pythons and things, that's true. Sure. Yeah. Even <laughs> an angry one is probably not as bad as a rock python. But well, in you my still ex- don't want to be anywhere near one that's in a bad mood. Yeah. In my experience, there is a, there is a differences between, you know, different species have different temperaments, but also different individuals have different Yeah, that's true. So very you're going to find yeah. some specimens that are... That's true. I had, a le- I had a leopard gecko that was like the most vicious gecko <laughs> in my... <laughs> And no one would believe me. And it was like, ah, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you know, I have, I have this Dazzy Peltis. And sometimes it's in a really bad mood. And it goes into the Sawscale Viper imitation thing. And it is so funny. Because, you know, it'll, it flattens its head. It gets the triangular head. It'll strike at you. It'll even hit you. It doesn't have any teeth. <laughs> so, so it's just like, ah. <laughs> But it's like an 80-year-old uh, old man without his dentures in being like, ah! <laughs> It's very funny. Okay, I thought that was a really great discussion. Um, we should answer a few questions from Lizardners, because that's, that's what we've got uh, left, and because we're a, lit, a bit long on time. 
Um, so first of all, I already answered the question about the rubber boa survival. That was asked by Leluili, who you guys will have heard of in the last episode, which is great. Um, Alex Hall, who's actually helping me on the boa and python paper thing. He's at Allopatry on Twitter. He asked if we have a favorite extinct turtle. I can only say Archelon. Oh, yeah. Mine, too. Just, Mine, too. Just because they're, like, massive sea turtles, you know? They are the <laughs> okay, biggest Gabriel. of all the turtles. <laughs> That's actually what I Amateurs. have written down in my notes, so I'm going to go there. <laughs> Amateurs. All right. Amateurs. All right, Gabriel. What, what, well, what should just, we say? I, 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 I have to go to, like, a, a, a turtle relative. Not a turtle. Not an actual turtle. But a turtle relative. Uh, no, 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 no. Not allowed. <laughs> he said favorite extinct turtle it says it in the words okay fine um, <laughs> you know the answer to this is to come up with some recently extinct one like you know one that right was, one that sure. went extinct you know well no i i forgot what the name was those those there was a group that is recently extinct that it has oh those are actually not turtles anymore let me just think about wait a minute they, they are not considered turtles recently they were not considered turtles anymore let me let me just think what tur- i guess i'll go with archelon as well uh-huh. <laughs> okay let me uh, let me just Nicholas. say that i'm bit among reptiles my least favorite reptiles are turtles i'm not a huge fan of turtles so there <laughs> oh well, I'm sure they feel the same way about you. So <laughs> We're gonna get a lot of angry letters from turtles now. I know. <laughs> yeah, all those teenage mutants who will be sending you angry me- messages. Um. So next question, Nicholas Sly, who is at Nick Sly Bird Guy. I think we had a question from Nicholas before. Um, asked. On Twitter, who does tongue projection better, chameleons or plethodontids? Plethodontids. Do you mean like functionally no. or like just better? This is a great question. So, in terms of speed, plethodontids. <laughs> but in in terms of power, length, length chameleons by length. far, and length. Yeah. yeah. Length. Yeah. 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 And, I mean, at smallest size, relative to body size, plethodontids win, but only barely. Also, plethodont uh, salamanders are objectively better animals, so... No, objectively. But, uh, <laughs> but I'm just going to... Also, we have to say that chameleons are extremely accurate. Plethodontids suck at catching anything. When <laughs> but they, that's all salamanders. Have you seen any yeah, salamander they are try to eat? Like, it's like, I how did you survive? I don't know how they... Yes, exactly. Me neither. I don't know how they survived to now. Gabriel, is there a study that says that? Because I need to cite it. No, I don't think we. Ha- I don't. Remember. I can't think of a study. That's that really says relevant it. to what I'm working on right now. Just cite the podcast. Oh, yeah, I'll cite the <laughs> exactly. podcast. You can do that. There's even a, a form for it in EndNote. <laughs> but in, I mean, you've ever seen like whenever you offer some food to a chameleon, it's gonna catch it. You try to do the same to the Platodontis salamander, it takes forever because it will strike everywhere. But That's never true. They're all, they're all idiots. They're terrible. So they're, yeah, they're like other, um, they're like other, uh, uh, um, sal- um, other amphibians then in the fact that like frogs, not great at hitting anything. <laughs> I know. It's like, wow, yes. how they survived millions of years. You wonder. I, that's, I, I have wondered that feeding my animals sometimes, like how did you manage... 
<laughs> what I find really funny is like people talk about micro eyelids because my, so micro eyelids are famous for having um, a the tongue is can move off the axis. So most frogs can only shoot forward, but micro eyelids can shoot out to the side, which means that they have a better coordination between their eyeballs and their tongues. But they're still extremely bad <laughs> at hitting any target. So, so these things that are renowned for their accuracy and their ability in hunting are still really Seems shitty like they have eaters. The, they have the equipment, just not the targeting system. No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you think that somewhere along the last, you know, I don't know, 150 million years, some uh, amphibian would have been like, ah, visual system, that's where it's at. But instead, they're like, I'd like to have big eyes. Not so that I can see better, but so that I can swallow larger prey. Well, that's, I, I, when I feed my uh, white's tree frogs, basically their method is to open their mouth and fall on stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, what I find fascinating about plethodontids is that their tongue muscles are anchored on their hip. Mm-hmm. Huh. Which is like... Uh, <laughs> you know how... how um, uh, um, Woodpeckers. Oh yeah, the, the tongue yeah. goes up and onto the top of the skull. I had to illustrate that for Does It Fart, actually. Oh or really? For, um, well, that's... Turupu, it was from the, the yeah. yeah. Yeah, for for Turupu. Yeah. Well, this would have been another really cool thing to illustrate for Turupu that the tongue muscle of of Hydromantes and other plethodontid salamanders is anchored on the hip, so it goes all the way through the body, which is just ridiculous. Nick should have known that since he studies. Yeah, he should have. Um, okay, so the final question is by Natalia Maas at Nat Does Science on Twitter, and she asks, "How do Sicilians find mates, and do they have any mating displays slash behaviors, or is it one slimy wham bam thank you ma'am ordeal once they find one another?" ChristianMingle.com well, you know, yeah. first of all, we have to yeah. we have to we have to Cecilia answer Mingle this question Cecilia by by, <laughs> by first saying that we know basically nothing about. I mean, it's very little known about Sicilian reproduction. Yeah, not us specifically. You mean like the the, the royal we? Uh, yeah, like I mean, it's all very science. Sicilians are poorly known in general. Yeah, I disagree. I think we have a relatively good understanding of how Sicilians find one really? another. Really, go to Sicilian cotillion. Yeah. <laughs> There's a song. Now I'm gonna have the song Sicilian stuck in my head again. <laughs> the first time I yeah. watched that, I had that song in my head for a week. I think you it'll need be to in the end show, the show notes, with friends. that. Actually, probably. Yeah. <laughs> that. We don't have the rights. <laughs> we don't, yeah, we, we don't might have, have rights problems. That. That's always an issue. But. Yeah, it's a it's a great song. You should go listen to it. It's a good follow up if you if you already like the Axolotl song, then you may enjoy the Sicilian Cotillion song. And that's it for the show. Thank you everybody for listening and I thought this was a really cool episode. I hope that you agree. And um right, now time to tell people where to find uh where to find you on the internet. Ethan where does one find you on the e- internet? Uh, I am at Black Mud Puppy on basically everything. <laughs> on all the things. Gabriel. Um, I'm at Serpent Illus at uh, Twitter and uh, 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 Instagram and on um, Facebook. I'm on Gabriel Ugeto Illustrations. Excellent. Helen. Let's see. On Twitter, I am Snakey Sai with 
three S's on the snakey. 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 <laughs> and um, on Instagram, I'm snakey lady. Excellent. Sweet. And I am Mark Schertz at M A R K S C H E R Z on all of the things uh, except on Instagram, I think, where I'm Mark dot shirts maybe <laughs> i don't know anyway if you <laughs> i feel like you should have worked that out beforehand yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, yeah if you need to find me just google my name i'm the only one so you'll be all right one and you only can follow yes. yes exactly well i think there is actually a, a different one but um he doesn't have anything on the internet he's so probably an accountant um, or something you know yeah probably Probably hates my guts. It's like, can't make a business out Mark of shirts! All over the internet. Damn you, Mark shirts! <laughs> so, you can find the extensive show notes for the episode on squamatespod.com, where you can also find the video of the Sicilian Cotillion song, and you can find links to all of our websitesy things and internet-y presences and all of those things. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, at squamatespod, on Facebook, Squamates Pod on Instagram, Squamates Pod. And if you have messages, you can write to us on any of those things. Or if you want something that can't be seen by the public, then you can write to us at uh, squamatespod at gmail.com. And what would be really great, listeners, would be really cool, would be if you'd go to iTunes, type it in, iTunes, and then you go and you leave us a review. Because reviews help us get listened to by other by other human beings, and they may also enjoy the show. So it would be really cool if you leave us a review and leave us a rating on there. You can also leave a review on Facebook, which also helps us to be seen by more people. And yeah, thank you for all of the people who've done that. It's so cool to read the reviews, and we've had some really nice feedback. So that's been um, excellent. And so uh, let's... Um, close by just saying what we always say. Hakuna Squamata! Hakuna Squamata. Interesting.